Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now Father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father we do thank you for your son who has glorified you and you glorified him. Help us, Father, to reflect Jesus in our congregation, all the people here, to reflect your glory. Help us to do that also, Lord, in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Children's Church is now going to start, kids. Before we get started, I do want to make one shameless plug. Um, we do, we are having our business meeting next week. Um, and so for those of you who haven't done this before with us, uh, this is a time when we come together as a church and we worship God through administration. Uh, we kind of joke about that, uh, but we're not actually joking about it. It's actually true. Uh, we're going to come together and worship as one complete body, okay? So our, we have another group of members of this church who worship in Spanish. They're going to be with us. Uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a family of faith. Uh, we're going to worship in English and in Spanish, um, more or less well, just depending on how we do that. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to come together and we're going to be about the business of the church. Uh, and so I would encourage you to come to that. One of the things that we're going to be doing this year uh, is we're going to be putting out, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, a, our directory, okay? This is, uh, is going to be all the folks in the church with a picture and how you can get a hold of them. It's a way that we can pray for each other. But one of the things that it requires is we got to have your picture, okay? And so Norma is, is putting these all in the, in the system. If, if we don't have your picture, now is the last chance that we can get it from you. So after the service, uh, find Amanda Bissett. Amanda is not in here right now. She's in the nursery right now, but she is Wes's wife. So if you can't find Amanda, find Wes. She will take your picture. Um, I, I don't, if, if you don't meet with her, she will hunt you down. She is tenacious, trust me. 
okay? Uh, please, please, please get with her and get your pictures so we can get the bulletin, or so we can get the, uh, the directory done, okay? This is something we want to do together. Um, so we have made kind of offhand references multiple times to this, the, the ice skating adventure that we had on Friday, and many untrue things have been said about me, okay? I want you guys to know that if there was a grade for what I did, it was exceeds expectations, okay? I got out there, yes, but most improved. I would have gotten the most improved. I got out there and I didn't break anything. There's nothing broken on me right now, which is huge because the last time I went ice skating with Chris, it was in my front yard and I broke my arm, okay? So um, as I was out there, you know, you go through this, this kind of learning phase as you get older. You know, we've talked about this. One of the themes this year has been I'm feeling older, and so you get to you. Now, don't shake your head, Mike. I am feeling older, okay? Um, and things that used to be fairly easy are not easy anymore. And so I got out there and I had that initial feeling as I get on the ice like, this is stupid. I can hurt myself really badly. I'm not like one of these kids that's going to fall down and then pop back up and be like, oh, okay, I'm better now. No, no, if I fall down, I'm probably not getting up. Like I'm going to be one of those guys that they have to cart out on a stretcher, okay? Um, and you see the stretchers on, on the wall. I'm like, oh, okay, uh, this isn't, I'm not really sure how this is going to go. But it, slowly, a little bit at a time, I get out there and I, I made it around the, the wall once. Uh, and then I made it around twice. And by that time, I had lapped Chris three times. So it's crazy. You know, he was, yeah, it's a real thing because he was going backwards, okay? Um, and and as I started going more and more, and I, I kind of got away from the wall like a small child who's learning how to walk. And now I'm, now I'm out there and I'm actually actually doing it, and I'm feeling like, feeling like Brian Boitano out there, it's great, you know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing okay, uh, and then the thought goes through my head, there's nobody videoing this, and, and so there's no proof that it happened, because that, that's the world we live in, right? We live in a world now where it, if we don't have a video of it, and if that video isn't posted on social media, it didn't happen. I, and I legitimately felt a sense of loss, which is stupid, I know, that I, that I didn't have this, this image out on social media where people would be able to like and comment on it, and then I could say funny things, and then I would get compliments. And, and, and I realized, I was like, I'm waiting for, for that, that rush that you get from posting things on social media. The Wall Street Journal this week had an article about this kind of thing. It talked about how TikTok stars, which I don't know if any of you guys watch TikTok. The younger folks actually do. I've tried. It's, it, it's not my thing. Um, TikTok stars are now outpacing CEOs of Fortune 500 companies in earnings. Okay, so legit... You know when you're like that little kid that you know in your neighborhood and he's like, I'm going to be a social media star. That's not a real career. That's a legit career now. Like you can legitimately make lots and lots of money as a social media influencer and a social media star. One study showed that of those that were on social media, over 65% had a goal of becoming a social media influencer. This has become a thing that is driving our culture, something that's driving our society. Now, most of these people are never going to transcend. 
just posting funny pictures about themselves on Instagram or politically charged conspiracy theories on Facebook, just whatever your thing is, however you want to do that. Nobody's going to, most of them are not going to get beyond that, but all of us now have this desire to become more provocative, to, to be more engaging, to get more people to look at us, to be noticed and to build an audience. One Christian author that I was reading this week described uh, kind of a, a, a circumstance that he had with his son where they went out to this really, really nice uh, a camping site on Lake Michigan and they were, they were out there and, and he saw some folks that were out cliff diving, which is dumb, but okay, they were out cliff diving and people were jumping off this cliff into the water and his son was like, I really, I really want to do it, Dad. He's like, no, you can't. Oh, I really, really, really want to do it. And the kid's like 16. So the dad's like, ah, oh, well, I mean, nobody's dead so far. Like nobody's actually died and I don't want to be a smothering parent. Maybe I'll let him do it. But then he had an idea. He said, hmm, as parents sometimes do, I'm going to take this thing that my kid wants and I'm going to turn it into a parenting moment, like a moment to inform his soul. And he said, you can do this, but we can't video it. And the son literally threw his hands up in the air and said, what's the point in that? <laughs> there it is, right? That's in our soul. This has become so integral to who we are now. That experiences are not worth having if we cannot leverage them for social influence. That says something about us. It says something about us that a 16-year-old boy, and 16-year-old boys are not known for impulse control. Their brains are hardwired by nature to reward them for risky behavior. But that's not good enough anymore. See, historically, it was your talent that got you noticed, but today, talent is marked by how we get noticed. The talent is getting noticed and building up an audience. One vital skill in this digital age is by getting noticed. Companies behind Facebook and TikTok are pushing for social media to be ever more integrated in our lives so that this becomes ever more a part of who we are. Every one of us seeks above all things to glorify ourselves. We live in an age marked by an all-consuming search for self-glorification. And so this need, this desire to glorify ourselves poisons us. It changes us. And it leaves many of us wondering how on earth can we move beyond this? How can we get to something healthy again? And I think it's instructive this morning that we're going to be studying Christ's high priestly prayer and his call for glory. Because you see, God's glory is the great antidote for our pride and our arrogance. When we dwell on the glory of God, all of our pretensions, they disappear. 
This morning, we are in John chapter 17. We have talked about this last week, the high priestly prayer of Christ. Jesus has been ministering to his disciples, and now he has stopped in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's beginning to pray. One, many Christian authors over, over thousands of years have described this prayer as the holy of holies of sacred scripture. Because it allows us into the secret counsels of Christ. See, what we pray for very often is the ultimate expression of what our heart wants. You want to know what somebody actually wants? Listen to what they pray for. It's really instructive. It's how we know that most people really seek money and fame and glory and health. We have the ear of Almighty God, and that's what we ask him for. And so by looking at the prayer that Jesus made, we begin to see what his heart is. And so what was Christ's heart? Christ's prayer is divided easily into three logical sections. The first section is his prayer to God for himself. The second, second part is his prayer for his disciples. And the third part is his prayer for the church. We're going to stay on the first part this week. Next week, we're going to look at how he prayed for his disciples. But this week, what did he pray for himself? Well, we read that he begins by asking God to glorify him. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He lifts his, high, his, his eyes up. He refers to God as Father. This is a, a moment of intimacy and drama. And he says these words, Father, the hour has come. This in and of itself is interesting because throughout the Gospel of John and many of the other Gospels, Jesus is constantly telling his disciples and anyone who will listen, the hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. Anybody who's been reading through any of the Gospels, you'll see this. Even in the Gospel of John, at the very beginning in Cana of Galilee, Jesus' mom says, hey, Jesus, why don't you help out the party and turn this water into wine? And Jesus says, no, woman, my hour has not yet come. And later on, as he begins to build a crowd and people begin to try to get him to become king by force, my hour has not yet come. When the, the demons declare who Jesus is out of the overwhelming knowledge of the presence of God among them, he says the hour hasn't come yet. It's not yet. Not yet. As he in, comes into Jerusalem, we're told that the hour is close. It's rapidly approaching. And now... Now, as Christ prays in the garden, he declares, the hour has come. But, but to, for us to understand what's going on here, we need to understand that this is more than just the hour of his betrayal and the hour of his crucifixion. This is the hour of the culmination of God's plan from before the beginning of time. From, from as far back as, 
as we can have in Scripture, and even before that, we see that this plan that God has been working out as he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, all of these plans, all of these strands, all of the tiles in the tapestry and the mosaic have all been brought together here to culminate in this moment. So Jesus declares, the hour has come Glorify your son. See, now at the brink of this great and cataclysmic moment in salvation history, Jesus declared that it's the time has come for him to throw off the mantle of his humility. For, for him to transcend this lowliness that we've come to expect from him. And it becomes something different. Something that he in fact, always was. He is about to suffer the ultimate sacrilege, the extreme profanity of his crucifixion, but this will result in resurrection and a name that the Romans and the Jewish leaders meant to be forgotten will be now known throughout all time. This man who's about to be treated as a common criminal is going to be lifted up as the the Davidic king of all Israel and then all the world. We read in scripture that God he will sit at God's right hand until God makes his enemies his footstool. That's the glory that he's talking about here. See, Jesus came to earth in humility, but now, now he dwells in glory. This is important for us as we begin to think about our own glory, as we begin to look at the way that we worship ourselves. See, part of the problem with our society is that we have become complacent with with Jesus. We, we've come to see him as, he, as less glorious than he actually is. They say that familiarity breeds contempt, and we all believe that we're familiar with Jesus. Most people in the United States, and indeed in most of the Western world, know or think they know who Jesus was. Two or three times a year, we see his face on magazines in the grocery aisle. There's movies about Jesus. Every couple of years, a new one comes out, and each one tries to be a little bit edgier and different than the one that came before. He's made fun of in TV shows and cartoons. See, our image of Jesus is either as a broken man perpetually affixed in agony to a cross... Or some either vaguely feminine proto-hippie in all of our religious imagery, right? Anybody who grew up in Sunday school over the last 30 years knows the image of Jesus. He's this kind of ethereal-looking man with this beautiful wavy chestnut hair that cascades over his shoulders. And you always know that it's Jesus because of his blue eyes, because nobody in the Middle East has blue eyes, by the way. And this blue sash. The blue sash is the way that you know it's Jesus because, of course, the Bible teaches us that Jesus always wore, he's a white guy in a blue sash. That's Jesus. And so we kind of see him, and he's, he's, he's always in, in movies, right? He's always kind of like very ethereal and kind of just like saying these gnomic things, and, and everybody's like around him. Or maybe we see him as a, as a revolutionary. 
In some instances, some TV shows have depicted him as having an affair with Mary Magdalene, or some of them have even described him as being gay. What we realize is all of these are false images. Christ crucified is a false image. Christ as the ethereal proto-hippie is a false image. Christ as the morally compromised leader of a misfit band is a false image of who Jesus actually is. Do you want to know who Jesus actually is, who he is right now? Let me describe to you from Scripture who Christ is. This is from the book of Revelation. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of a fire, and his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in the, in the blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus. This is Jesus come to reclaim his kingdom. A warrior on a white horse in a robe dipped in blood. There is nothing humble about that. Or about what he has been called to do. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and will tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's who Christ is. Amen? That's who Christ is. He is powerful, and he comes in power. One author put it this way. He said, Jesus took a beating once, and that's the last beating he will ever take. Amen? The next time he comes, he comes in glory to right every wrong and crush every power. That is the glory of God. That's the glory that Jesus is calling on God to give him. Brothers and sisters, oh, that we would remember the glory of God and the glory of Christ, that we would not be flippant with who Christ is or what he did for us, because see, this glory that he has, this glory that he's praying to God for, this glory comes on the other side of something inglorious, something terrible, something humiliating. He begins to talk about this authority that he has been given and how this authority works itself out in glory. He says, since you have given him, and he's talking about himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given to him. He's talking about this plan that Jesus has been given from before the beginning of time. Authority over all humanity. This plan that has been working itself out throughout the life of mankind and throughout the life of Israel. This eternal plan as it begins to come to fruition. He's saying, I've done my part. I've played my role. And what is this plan? That he would bring eternal life to all who have been given to him. And this is what eternal life is. That they would know you, the only true God. He's saying, I came here. I have suffered to point all mankind back to the Father. This one that they have run away from. This image that's been broken. I'm here to demonstrate that through his life and his suffering and his death to point all mankind back to God. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave for me to do. What is that work? 
That work is teaching. But more importantly, that work is about to be to go to the cross and die. See, Christ's ministry has brought glory to God on earth, and now Christ is asking God to glorify him through the cross. I want you to think about that. He is literally asking Christ, asking God to send him to the cross so that the work will be done. God has manifested his glory by saving sinners through the ministry and the death and the resurrection of his son. And this is part of a plan. Listen to me. Our salvation is not something that we earn. It's not something that we get from being good enough or smart enough or pretty enough or having the right family. If that's what you think is the basis of your salvation, you're lost. I'm just telling you right now. If you come into this place trusting in your family for righteousness, you're going to have a surprise when Christ rides in on the white horse. You have been saved because of the plan of God. And you have been saved because of his glory. We sing a song here in the church called Reckless Love. And I love Reckless Love. It's a great song. There's only, there's only one verse that I don't like. And it says, he didn't want heaven without me, so he brought heaven down. That's not how it works, guys. No, no, he saved you, not because he needed something from you. He saved you because it brought him glory and because he chose to do it. He did it for his own name. And you had nothing to do with it. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards said it this way, we bring nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. What a glorious truth that is. Because it means that it's free. That it's something that we don't have to work towards. It's not something that we have to know the, just the exact right words to say at the exact right time. That he has called us and brought us to himself. See, Jesus is praying for his glory and pointing to the finished work of his followers as a sign of his glorification. And now he's about to describe what the true nature of this glory is. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, his glorification comes through his work on earth, but it does not come from the earth. Jesus isn't asking for worldly fame or he's not some Viking asking for a good death like, you know, let me go to Valhalla. No, that's not what's happening here. He's not asking God to save him at the last minute or enthrone him with the angels. Instead, he's asking after a different kind of glory. He doesn't want human glory with all its falsity and its vanity. He wants the glory of God, true, lasting, eternal glory. This is the kind of glory that it's hard for us to quantify or to describe because of the overwhelming nature of God. In Scripture, God's glory is infinite moral excellence. Now, I, I can't comprehend what that means. 
But, but I have ideas. The unity of his perfection, something so overwhelming that it manifests when it manifests at all in physical light or fire or wind. In elemental forces that ape and represent something far beyond our comprehension. The one thing that we do know is that the glory of God is so overwhelming that humanity can't encounter it. Throughout scripture, people ask, I want to see your glory, Lord. He's like, you can't handle my glory. In fact, Moses is the closest one to it. And he comes out so changed by the glory of God that he has to wear a veil so that he doesn't hurt the eyes of the people that are seeing his reflected glory. We're told that God's glory is so overwhelming that if we see it, we'll die. C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said, nature never taught me that there exists a God of glory and infinite majesty. I had to learn that in other ways. But nature gave the word glory meaning for me. I still don't know where else I could have found one. I don't see how the fear of God could ever have meant to me anything but the lowest prudential efforts to be saved if I had never seen certain ominous ravines or unapproachable crags. For anybody who's ever seen the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Tetons, we know what glory sort of looks like. Beauty that is so beyond our comprehension that it takes our breath away. That's an inkling of God's glory. Jesus is asking for this kind of glory, not something new or alien to himself either. He's asking for something that he's shared with God before the beginning of time. We're told that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. He is the effulgence of God's glory. And that word effulgence means the the halo of the sun, if you put your thumb over the sun, which you shouldn't do, by the way. Please don't go do this. But if you did, if you're just like some crazy kid out there, and you put your thumb up, look, look, and see the sun. That corona that comes around, that's the effulgence of the sun's glory. That is what Jesus is. He is the part of God's glory that we can see and we can comprehend and we can interact with. Now, I want you to hear me. If anyone ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, and there are people out there that'll say this. Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's just a, a myth that the early Christians made up. I want you to think to this verse. Because here Jesus is claiming that he has experienced and shared in the glory of God in eternity past. If that's not a way of saying that he is divine... I don't know what else is. We can only dimly perceive what this glory must have been like before the world was created. We know that he was part of the creator of the universe, something, a universe that's so large that it would take 50 quadrillion years to go to every star that he created. We can begin, we've got the new James Webb telescope that's up there that's going to show us further into the universe than we've ever seen. And every square inch of that was created by God and Christ before time began. That's an inkling of God's glory. Just a shadow 
But there's something else going on here too. Something that we can't miss. I want you to think back to verse 1. He's asking God to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. See, Jesus is asking God to glorify him, but even here, Jesus is not seeking self-aggrandizement. He's seeking the glory of his Father. He's saying, in glorifying me, you glorify you. His glory will be a reflection of the glory of God. He's not suffering and dying for his own glory, but for the glory of his Father. In the deepest, most intimate moment, Christ is completely conformed to the will of God. His, his glory is the Father's glory, and his Father's glory is his primary concern. See, God sent Christ to save sinners so that his name would be made great. And his glorious nature would be proclaimed through the death and resurrection of his son. Jesus acknowledges this. And he reveals that it's the center of everything that he does. The beating heart of his ministry is the glory of God. The ministry of Jesus is focused and centered and built on the glory of God, guys. And this is appropriate. This is fitting. It's fitting for God's glory to dwell at the center of Christ's priorities because God's glory is at the center of God's own affections. There is nothing that God cares for more than his own glory. Now, for many of us, that's, that's going to feel weird, right? Like, if we're honest with ourselves, if I say the number one thing that God cares about is his own glory, you're going to be like, oh, that doesn't... It doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well inside. Because it makes God sound like a narcissist, right? Like if I were to come to you and be like, my own glory is uppermost in my own affections, y'all be like, this guy is a clown. This guy is, is self-centered. He's a narcissist. I, at, at best, I'd sound like a weirdo. At worst, I sound like one of those megalomaniacal guys like Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler, somebody who's willing to kill and commit genocide for his own glory. That's what this sounds like. We're taught to hate selfish, self-centered people, to see it as a character flaw. But we need to understand that for God, this is completely appropriate. See, God is the unity of perfections. He is the most perfect being in all existence and outside of existence. He was before all things and will be after all things. He created all things and all things are upheld by his glory and his might. Beauty is only beautiful because it reflects the beauty that is God. Goodness is only good because it reflects the goodness of God. He is the perfect picture of all of these things, and he gives meaning to all of these things. And so for God to want to bring glory to that aspect of himself is completely appropriate because he is magnifying that which is best in life. For him to do anything other than that would be idolatry.
if we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize that this is hard for us because we have been taught that we are the center of creation. That we're the most important thing out there. Each of us thinks that we are the main character in our story. And everybody else are bit actors and bit parts. That we exist to glorify ourselves. This is the sin from the very beginning. The desire not to want to be a created being, but to be the creator himself. To supplant God on the throne of the world. That feeling you have inside of you is unique to all mankind. Or not unique, it's universal to all mankind. But we need to understand that the glory of God should be the central guiding force in our life. All of our lives should be built around a desire to magnify and glorify God. Now focus on God's glory places us in our proper perspective. I want you to think all the way back. What is the way that we overcome this desire in social media that's destroying our culture and destroying our lives? We refocus on the glory of God. See, social media focuses our glory on ourselves. Either we're trying to expand our own glory or we're basking in the fake glory of somebody else who's posting pictures that they've staged. Right? There's no better example of this than that girl who was like out in the van. Remember van life? I don't even remember what her name was. But she got killed by her, by her the boyfriend. Who was that? It wasn't Amanda Knox. That was something else. I don't know. It's hard to pick, keep track of all these different things. But she's out there. Living the van life, taking pictures of herself, telling everybody how awesome her life is as her boyfriend's beating her and ultimately kills her. If there is a better example of the falsity of social media, I can't think of one. And yet we bask in this fake glory instead of the glory of the one who made us and created us. The path to wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. This is why it's important to meditate on God's word and to be silent in his presence so that we can hear him and experience him. Over and over and over again, you're going to hear me tell you to have a quiet time. And I think it kind of just becomes dull, like this background, oh, God, the pastor wants me to do a quiet time again. Absolutely. You will not hear from God if you are not quiet in his presence. And for so many of us, spending time with God is just listing off a litany of things that we want or we're not happy with. And we think that we've done a great job. Oh, I went and talked to God today. Do you like the guy who calls you up and just complains all the time? Is he a pleasant person to talk to? Now, God is far better than me and he'll listen, okay? So don't hear me saying you can't take your concerns to God. But sometimes, most of the time, we need to be still in the presence of God. We need to bask in his glory, right? Oh, when, when we have our discipleship, one of the key questions that I ask is, how have you been enjoying the love of Christ this week? And most people look at me like I got a blank, like, like, like I got a horn growing out of my head. They're like, uh, I'm supposed to be uh, experiencing the love of Christ? Yes. Believe it or not, being a Christian is supposed to be awesome. We're supposed to be pervaded by the peace of God and experience the joy of Christ. And for many of us, we're not. And the reason we're not is we're not basking in his presence. We're not taking the time to spend with him. 
We're not thinking about the greatness of his glory. We're not ruminating on great texts from the scripture like Romans 11.3. I want you to listen to this just for a moment. I want you to close your eyes and try to comprehend what this means. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want, you to, I want to ask you a question. What would your life be like if it was focused on the glory of God? I just want you to take a moment and think about this. What it would mean for you if all of the aspects of, of your life, if everything that you did had at its center the glory of God. What, what would your marriage be like if it had at its center the glory of God? If you saw your marriage as an opportunity to worship God by loving a difficult person for the rest of your life. By practicing forgiveness and practicing humility, if you saw marriage as an act of worship. Brothers and sisters, so many of our failing marriages would be rescued if we saw them that way. If we really believed that marriage is a picture of that. What if, what if we put glory, the glory of God at the center of our parenting? Instead of seeing our children as monuments to our own parenting skill, what, what, what would happen if we saw our children instead as an opportunity to glorify God? What if we cared more about our children's character and our children's relationship with God than we did about their education? If we cared more about that than we cared about whether or not they had the latest toy or the best clothing. Now, guys, we don't mean to do it. I don't mean to do it. I'm talking to myself here. I want my kids to have everything I didn't have. I want my kids to have every opportunity. And when we do that, Invariably, we begin to worship ourselves and our own glory because we're living our lives vicariously through them. What if, what if we saw our children as something that had been entrusted to us by God? Something that, that, that we had the opportunity to train and bring up for the service of God. I can't tell you how many times parents talk to me about how they don't want their children to go into ministry. There are times when I don't want my kids to go into ministry or to go to the mission field. But guys, there is no higher honor than to raise up children that God uses in his kingdom. Oh, that we really believe that. Oh, that I really believe that. What if, what if the glory of God laid at the center of this church? I know we're a church, and I know we're supposed to be about God's glory, but so often we're about everything else. We're about budgets. We're about programs. We're about music. 
right? We're about cookies. Can't tell you how much effort and energy goes into coffee and cookies here. It's a real thing. We're Baptists. is what we do, okay? But what if a single-minded desire for the glory of God permeated everything that we did in this church? What if we were willing to give up things that didn't bring him glory and embrace things that did bring him glory, even if they were uncomfortable or scary? What would that church look like? How would God's spirit be poured out in that place? Well, brothers and sisters, we, we've talked about these different things and we've looked at them. I don't want you to look at these as just something else to feel bad about. I want us to realize that this is achievable. That Christ came and he lived and he died so that we too could have the glory of God at the center of our lives. This is part of that process of rebirth as the old is gone and the new comes in as the old man dies and the the new the new man is reborn we are called to be like christ we are remade in the image of christ we have the opportunity today to take a step in the direction of living our lives the way that christ did every morning every day for the rest of your life you get to choose what is going to be at the center of what you do? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you as we prepare to leave this place. Make a commitment today, every morning of every day, to live your life with the glory of God as the beating heart and the center of all that you do. Will you pray with me? Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.